guess we might as well just get into it. Hello and welcome. I'm Ben Schultz. I'm Nora Schultz. And you're listening to Trying to Adapt, and today we're trying to adapt to Notre Dame de Paris, or The Hunchback of Notre Dame by Victor Hugo. This is part two, because this episode is really long, because there's a lot to talk about. Yeah, a lot. It takes us to backtrack a little bit. Now it's 1466. Oh, 1467, I'm sorry. It's the Sunday after Easter, which is known uh, in some parts of Europe as Quasimodo Sunday. Um, fun fact, the name Quasimodo Sunday, um, the Disney movie kind of perpetuated this myth that Quasimodo means half-formed. First of all, like, Quasimodo as a prefix really means more, like, as if, or, like, in the way, uh, you know, it's, it's... It comes from a Latin hymn where basically the first line translates to in the same way that babies cry. So Quasimodo means in the same way that. It's not really like a word that like means all that much, but we'll we'll definitely be talking about that in, in different adaptations because a lot of them try to kind of explain why is he called Quasimodo? That's a weird name. And they don't quite hit the mark in getting it accurate as to explaining why he's called that we'll also see that victor hugo had a lot more liberty to like you know get some digs at like the medieval church for example american society modern american society may interpret these digs as more like digs at organized religion in general and so we see in a lot of adaptations almost all of them that like Frollo's role in the clergy is played down or removed. You know, things like Quasimodo, like the connection to religion is a lot of times removed because the role that the church, and not like the physical church, but the church, the role of the Catholic church gets played down in many adaptations. But so basically, I think you can guess where this is going. There's a table outside of Notre Dame where people leave infants that they can't care for and someone we don't really know who has left this severely deformed four-year-old on the table and everyone is just kind of gawking at it and trying to figure out like is this a demon or what people kind of figure out like this isn't even a baby he's like four years old that's the estimate and it seems like victor hugo basically agrees with this Quasimodo's exact age is never really given. He seems to think that he's about 20, but... He he claims that he knows his exact birth date. Which seems unlikely. But he's, he's a foundling. There's no way that he would know that. These people have come to the conclusion that this is a demon, and so they're already making plans for, like, how can we, like, burn this thing? And then all of a sudden, this young... I don't know if he's quite even a priest yet at this time. Probably not. He's... He's still basically a student. But so, as you can probably guess, this is Claude Frollo. And he just walks up and he's like, all right, I adopt this child. No no one's going to stop him because it's not like anyone else wants the child. So instead, they just they, they just move on to talking about how, like, well, if that baby's a demon and this weird guy wants to adopt it, what does that make him? Some kind of sorcerer. Yeah, people already basically think he's a sorcerer because he is into alchemy, like a massive nerd. 
So then we learn more about Claude Frollo. There's literally a chapter called More About Claude Frollo. So he came from a, you know, like a land-owning family, not nobility, basically the middle class, upper middle class of the medieval era. So his parents basically dumped him in medieval priest school. He never really, like, he didn't have a strong relationship with his parents. He presumably rarely ever saw them. He didn't really make any friends in church school. His whole life was just about studying, and which is good because he was a very good student. This helped him become, like, a fairly significant clergyman at a very young age. When he's about 19 years old, his parents die from a plague Frollo, you know, goes to visit them, sees that they're dead, but more importantly, they left an infant son behind. I guess it took them 20 years to get it on again. Claude discovers his little baby brother, and I guess this is just the kind of guy he is. He sees a baby with no parents, and he's just like, I'm gonna take it. I mean, it's kind of understandable with Jayad, because, you know, he is now the patriarch of the Frollo family, um, at 19 years old. So he adopts Jayad. He becomes a father figure for Jayad. Not a very good one. In case you weren't paying attention, Frollo didn't really have a father figure in his own life. So great time for him to become a father to two different children at the same time. So basically, this is the reason why he wants to adopt Quasimodo, is that he sees this child there. And he's like, that kind of reminds me of my brother who I care for. Yeah, and he's also thinking like, well, if I were to die, Jayad would become a foundling. And think about how awful that would be. And there's also like a, kind of an interesting element of Frollo's thinking like, well, Jayad inspired me to do this like selfless act. So maybe that'll kind of help him get into heaven. Frollo's an interesting guy. He is pretty much only good at studying and religion and Latin. His, his life skills are a little lacking. But his Latin skills get him an important position in the church at a fairly young age as an archdeacon. So this gives him basically the ability to, I, I don't know what exactly he does, but he, he, this gives him a position of authority in Notre Dame. And so he basically, he, he takes these two children there and just raises them in the cathedral. Well, Jayad, pretty early on, he sends Jayad off to church school because Claude's like, well, I turned out fine. He didn't. Um, Jayad also does not turn out fine. But Claude doesn't really know what else to do with a little child. Um, he doesn't do that with Quasimodo, though, because he's obviously, you know, too ugly to live. So instead, Quasimodo just kind of spends all his time around the church because nobody else knows where to put him. Frollo, you know, makes efforts to teach him how to read, how to write, how to speak. But Quasimodo is really into bells. From an early age, when he's about 14 years old, he becomes the bell raider, presumably just because he he wanted to, and Claude was like, uh, that, that seems like a nice hobby. And he goes deaf. Now, this is interesting because right before he goes deaf, he's becoming, you know, despite his deformity, he's becoming a, fair, a surprisingly kind of well-adjusted young man, but, like, losing his hearing when he's so obsessed with ringing these bells and hearing the sounds that they make, just, like, crushes his spirit. 
It's kind of like the end of Baby Driver. But also, like, Frollo took the time to teach him how to speak, you know? Like, I this probably helped Quasimodo feel more like he was a normal person. But this dashes his ability to speak. Because he's deaf, he really can't communicate with anybody else. You know, this is obviously well before the time of, like, a standardized sign language. So... Frollo kind of develops this, like, system of sides with Quasimodo, but nobody can communicate with him other than Frollo. Which is why, you know, in the present, when Frollo comes up to him and basically starts yelling at him in sign language, like, Frollo is Quasimodo's master. That becomes the sort of relationship that they have. Much more than father and son, it's like... Quasimodo will do whatever Frollo tells him to do because Frollo is the only person who has treated him like a human being. So basically people see Claude Frollo walking around with Quasimodo and as before they just kind of assume like well I mean if he's if he's got this guy like hanging at his heels all the time and he's like so ugly he must be a demon of some kind. Uh, Frollo has sold his soul to the devil in order to get basically like a familiar and they just kind of assume that like at some point satan's gonna come collect and frollo's just going to disappear one day and that is kind of what happens as far as people are concerned quasimodo and frollo are not well liked by parisian society quasimodo because of his disfigurement and so people assume that he is a demon and frollo is just you know he's not an emotionally present guy he tries to raise jayad to be you know a pious man like he is for the most part but jayad presumably because of this lack of like you know any parental support in his life becomes pretty wild and crazy and gets drunk all sorts of debauchery so this was really like jayad became like the one thing that was really important to Frollo, even, like, more than his studies. And so to see Jayan become, like, so completely opposite of what he wanted and what he tried to have Jayan become leads him only to become more immersed in his studies, and he eventually gets bored with studying, you know, all of the god-related things. He's kind of like, he's been over all that. So he turns to alchemy which does not help his reputation whatsoever. People don't like Claude Frollo, but everybody knows for the most part that he's basically one of the smartest people in the entire city. And even, like, the king's assistants know this. And so we have, like, one more flashback before we get back into the actual, like, main plot of the book. Uh, We're told that one night the king's doctor shows up at Frollo's door and basically says to him, like, I have this patient here. I I just, like, don't know how to cure his illness. Can you, like, help this guy? Frollo basically says, like, yeah, I don't believe in medicine, so if you want me to do some, like, weird alchemy stuff, I, I can do that. Frollo is basically, like, the really smart guy that everybody knows that, like, has too much time on his hands, gets bored with, like, conventional knowledge, and basically just, like, goes ham. Now, this mysterious, this mysterious patient is just completely blown away 
by Frollo's declaration that like he doesn't believe in medicine and he's he's really interested he wants to know more and Frollo basically tells him like if you want to become my assistant I can show you all the ropes with alchemy I can hopefully with your help I can finally figure out how to turn lead into gold and Frollo says some sick line about, like, if I could turn lead into gold, the king's name would be Claude and not Louis, which, like, Jesus Christ, dude. And it's only right as this guy is leaving that Frollo realizes that was actually King Louis XI in disguise. So, like, he, he suddenly realizes he basically told the king I would be king if I could just figure out how to make gold. Which is... Dare I say big dick energy? Really, the only example of big dick energy that Claude Frollo ever shows us. It's all downhill from here. I should also point out, you may encounter people online saying that, like, oh, well, in the Disney movie, like, Claude Frollo is super sexist and super racist, but he isn't in the book, which is not true. Like, even by 1400 standards, people who, like, know Claude Frollo pretty well, which isn't that many people, you know, but, like, other clergymen, like, comment on, like, this Claude Frollo dude really hates gypsies. This Claude Frollo dude really hates women. Like, he's terrified of women. Yeah, in fact, like, this whole bit where he meets the king is, like, preceded by a very short mention of, like, this one time where the king's daughter wanted to visit Notre Dame, and he basically said, like, no women are allowed in the church. And, like, every other priest in Paris tells him, like, that's not a thing. And he just, like, absolutely refuses, refuses, until eventually, like, they force him. So basically he's like, fine, she can come to Notre Dame, but I will not be there. Yeah, so, like, Claude Frollo is, he spent pretty much his entire life either in church school or in church, physically in church. You know, when he, at such a young age, becomes responsible for Jayad, he basically decides, like, Jayad is the only person I ever need to love. Like, I have a brother slash son. What more do I need? I don't need, like, romantic love. I'm just gonna dedicate my life to Jayad and to God. And we see that the whole Jayad thing doesn't go very well. I mean, other than, like, his position as Archdeacon, you know, like, Claude Frollo... He's a pretty lonely guy. He's not very happy or satisfied with his life. So he is very against the concept of him, like, having any sort of sexual encounters, experiences, or thoughts, which that's not a good mentality for anybody. And that's going to be very important in just a minute. There's one other important thing before we get into, like, the actual plot of the book again. At least, Victor Hugo considers it very important. There's one line where Frollo is talking to the guy he doesn't know yet is the king, and he just, like, has this cryptic little moment where he looks out his window at Notre Dame, and he looks on his desk at a book which was made by the recent invention of the printing press, and he says... This, the book, will kill that, and he points at the church. Victor Hugo basically spends the next chapter just kind of breaking down that one line. This will kill that. Victor Hugo has Frollo say this, and then the next chapter goes, what did he mean by this? So basically what you need to know, and you don't need to know this, but, I mean, you've gotten this far. 
But it has to do with the central theme of the book, which is, like, the role of architecture in history. Right, and so basically the point here is that the meaning of this statement is twofold. One, the printing press is going to kill the church in the sense that, like, the church is the most dominant political force in the world at this time. Uh, The printing press is going to make it possible for, like, Martin Luther and the Protestant Reformation and all that, and eventually down the line to the Age of Enlightenment and the French Revolution and all that kind of stuff. But there's the other meaning here. The printing press will kill architecture. And that's a really weird statement. This is Victor Hugo's big hot take of the entire book, is that the printing press is basically allowing people to express their artistic creativity in a very convenient, very cheap, very relatively easy new way. The importance of building these great structures is diminished a lot by the fact that, like, if you want to leave your mark on this world, you don't have to design a gigantic cathedral anymore. You can just write a book and publish it for this relatively low cost, and if it's good enough, you know, you'll be remembered forever. Well, yeah, I mean, Victor Hugo, obviously, like, it's kind of easy to dismiss exactly what he's saying, but you can kind of understand, too, that, like, what we think of as architecture today is very different than what architecture would have been in a pre-literate society. Like, today, architects, you know, many of them may have, like, the goal of producing art in mind. But a lot of times, architecture, and even in Victor Hugo's time, was designed for convenience, or was designed for, like, being cost-effective. All the sorts of art that was involved in creating these giant gothic cathedrals, you know, all of the sculptures, all of the intricate references to the Bible, and all of these, like, paintings, and stained glass, and, like, all of this, like, all these things became their own art forms. What Victor Hugo sees as, like, you know, the architecture of his time, like, can't compare with the sort of architecture that was supposed to be a grand artistic statement by hundreds of people working, you know, for centuries at a time sometimes on a single building. Victor Hugo, obviously, you know, a fan of the printing press, kind of allows him to make all of his money, but at the same time, he kind of laments that architecture will never be, in his view, what it once was. That architecture will never again be, like, the primary artistic medium. Now, this part, I assume, like, it must have been very controversial at the time, because when this book was originally published, that part was left out. And then a couple years later, after the book had gotten pretty popular, he publishes a new edition, and he basically says, like, so I lost this chapter, and then I recently found it, and I decided I might as well just slip it back in. Pretty much anyone who, like, studies Victor Hugo's work is pretty sure that, like, he didn't actually lose it. He was just, like, deliberately holding it back because he thought it would be too controversial. Yeah. And not only controversial, but, like, Victor Hugo was very much... I mean, he was a young man when he wrote this and was very much thinking about his career and the kind of money that he could make off of Hunchback. And it was a very popular book. You know, I mean, imagine if, like, a super popular YA novel came out, but in the middle it just had this essay about, like... God, I don't even know. 
But obviously, like, that would be, that wouldn't help very much with this book's reputation. Wouldn't have copies flying off the shelves quite so much if the Hunger Games just had this long bit about architecture in the middle. So, you know, from a business point of view, Victor Hugo's like, I'll, I'll see how popular this book gets. And then maybe I can just sort of slip this in in the same way that, like, you would put a pill in, like, you know, like, put some dog food around it to get your dog to eat it. That's basically what Victor Hugo is doing with this essay. And he's surrounding it with, like, melodrama. And this is kind of the centerpiece of the book. And now we finally kind of get back into 1482. We get back into the main plot line of the story. So it's the next day. It's the day after a holiday. So everyone in the whole city of Paris is super hungover. And no one really wants to be fucked around with today. And today is also the day that Quasimodo is going on trial for trying to kidnap Esmeralda. And so the judge who's presiding over this trial is basically completely deaf, like Quasimodo. But he is trying to hide it because he wants to keep up his professional reputation and all that. And it's not going super well. The judge doesn't fully understand what's going on. Quasimodo doesn't fully understand what's going on. And when Quasimodo is asked questions, he kind of tries to figure out what they're asking him. You know, like he assumes like, oh, they're probably asking me what my name is right now. But that isn't what's going on at that point. So people assume that he's trying to mock the judge. And this makes the judge pretty pissed. Right, because like everybody's laughing for some reason. So obviously Quasimodo must have said something super rude and I need to punish him now. Yeah, so it's basically a big wacky misunderstanding and Quasimodo basically just has has to get like flogged and whipped for an hour publicly. Our beautiful boy Jean Frollo is in the audience and because of like the little shit that he is, he swears loudly. The judge kind of has, like, a guy, like, whispering in his ear. Like, he's not totally deaf. And the judge hears that this guy swore, and he's like, he assumes it's Quasimodo, because plot, purpose. And this makes him super pissed, and now he has to be flogged for two hours. So they take Quasimodo into the square, and the creepy old woman who lives in this weird little prison cell in the middle of the street comes back because she's, like, watching all this. And this is the part where we actually get, like, her whole backstory. And I ba- we basically, like, explained this earlier, but yeah. So she was this young woman. Uh, she got pregnant from, like, an unknown man. So she was this single mother, and she ha- was, like, raising this baby. And then one day the gypsies uh, came to her town, which was not Paris. She came to Paris later on. I don't know exactly what's going on here, if there's supposed to be some more sympathetic explanation, because it seems like there was supposed to be. But so basically the gypsies, like, steal her baby, and she just goes, like, absolutely insane with grief, kind of like uh, Tony Collette in Hereditary. Yeah, basically, it's just like that. Um, you know, the part where the part where Tony Collette's character then, like, prostrates herself and like goes to live in a basically a little hole in the middle of Paris and like wears a hair shirt and like yeah well I, I, I was thinking like you know if you were making a 
movie adaptation today, Tony Collette might actually be pretty good casting for this woman. All right. So I, I hope someone from Hollywood is listening to this because. Yeah, because uh, Disney just recently announced that they're making a live action version of The Hunchback, which unfortunately is going to come out too late for us to discuss in the next couple months on this podcast. But hopefully when it does come out, we'll just kind of like backtrack and discuss how it fits into everything else we talked about. Yeah, we'll just add another episode to this season. That's fine. Yeah, so, like, when you're reading this story about, don't they literally call her, like, Sack Lady, basically? Yeah, I mean, it is in French, but, like, that's what it translates to. Yeah, Sack Lady. Yeah, so I'm gonna call her Sack Lady, because I think, like, that's that's what Victor Hugo was really intending. And the prison cell that she lives in is called the Rat Hole, so this is, this is a really pleasant living situation for her to be in. Sack lady, um, she hates gypsies now. And so, like, as a modern reader, when I was going through this, I kind of figured, like, you know, like, something happened to her kid, I'm sure, but, like, there's no way the gypsies stole and ate her baby. You know, like, that's crazy. She's clearly, like, being blinded by racism. And I think, like, that would have been an interesting take, but that's not what happens. Uh, Turns out, in the end, that her, like, racism is just totally spot on. Other than the baby-eating part, which, like, I don't know where she's got, she got that from. But so, I mean, there's, there's like, a whole long story. I don't think we need to get into the details of that. The, the reason we hear this story is that, like, a couple people from the town that this sack lady is originally from are visiting Paris on this day. They just, like, just so happen to be bringing, like, food and water as kind of a charity thing to the woman who lives in the rat hole. To Sack Lady. And when they get there, they find out that the Sack Lady is, in fact, that single mother who lost her child and went insane and moved to Paris. Yeah, again, like, Victor Hugo kind of sets this up as, like, a a, a twist, but, like, we kind of do. There's a lot of twists in this story that are, like, really, really obvious. To the point where you can't even call them twists. Like, yeah, we we all figured that that was Sack Lady, because you're... So she's there while Quasimodo is about to get whipped for two hours straight. So, yeah, he gets whipped for the first hour, then the second hour is just, like, people throwing rocks at him. So Quasimodo's life is really going great right now. And just to add insult to, like, literally insult to injury, he sees Claude Frollo on horseback. I I guess he is just kind of walking around the city. Frollo, like, looks right at Quasimodo, makes eye contact, recognizes him, and then walks away. And Quasimodo is like, oh, my dad is here to save me. And then he just, like, walks away. And, like, I think we can all imagine how much that would suck. Yeah, I mean, don't you hate it when you're getting publicly whipped and your own dad comes and, like... Like, now I'm just picturing... Like, I'm getting whipped in the middle of, like, Monument Square. And dad comes up and just, like, shakes his head and walks away and goes to the outlet. So... Once this is over, Quasimodo's crying out for water and everyone's making fun of him until Esmeralda comes up, walks through the crowd, and just, like, starts giving him water because, I guess, just because she's a really nice person. And we've already seen, like, she literally married a guy just so he wouldn't die. Esmeralda has a good heart. And this scene is rather iconic. Uh, From here on out, I'm going to refer to it as the watering of the hunchback. Yeah, this is something that we're going to see in, I think, every adaptation. Yeah, like, this and the sanctuary moment are probably the most iconic. 
Yeah, so Quasimodo gets watered by Esmeralda, um, like a withered plant. So Quasimodo obviously takes note of the fact of, like, a person was nice to me. This is a crazy development in my life. Now, I, th- I think she doesn't quite recognize that this is the same guy who was trying to kidnap her literally last night. Well, yeah, no, I mean, it was dark. I don't think Esmeralda ever really realizes who was trying to kidnap her. I think he does tell her later that it was him. Listen, I've pushed out all these plot points with whale facts. Meanwhile, you know, the sack lady is sitting in her prison cell getting super mad because a gypsy is doing a nice thing for this guy. And also at the same time, Captain Phoebus uh, just so happens to be sitting on a balcony looking over the square because he is getting married to the girl who lives there whose name is Fleur de Lis. A little on the nose. And so he's like, hey, wait a minute. That's the girl that I saved from being kidnapped yesterday. I'm going to go call her over and see if she can demonstrate some of her weird parlor tricks. So he, like, has her come into this house and just, like, show off the things that her goat can do. And her goat has, like, some alphabet blocks and spells out Phoebus's name with them. And that, like, really freaks people out. Fleur de Lise realizes that, like, Phoebus is clearly more interested in Esmeralda, and Esmeralda is also, like, more conventionally attractive than her. So, like, this kind of pisses off all of the, like, rich girls. Like, they're immediately jealous of Esmeralda, and this whole situation really just kind of sucks. Also, one of the girls realizes, like, hey, who's that, like, creepy guy standing um, at the top of Notre Dame who is, like, staring at Esmeralda? And, yep, it's Claude Frollo. I think this might be, like, the only time in the entire book where we have all the major characters in basically the same place at the same time. So the girls start ripping out Esmeralda, you know, for being brown and poor and that sort of thing. After Jolly spells out Phoebus, like, everyone's kind of freaking out, um, and Esmeralda leaves. Phoebus is like, should I follow her? Then he decides to. He has nothing to lose, I guess. And so then the focus shifts to Frollo. Um, Frollo was 100% staring at Esmeralda rather creepily. And also notices that he she is accompanied by a strange man. As Frollo is leaving from the top of the tower to the square, he notices that Quasimodo is, like, super caught up on Esmeralda as well, obviously because he recognizes her as the girl who watered him. So Frollo thinks that this is a little weird. He also notices that he recognizes the guy who's helping Esmeralda with her performing and stuff, and it is none other than Pierre Gringoire, who was one of Claude Frollo's students, who kind of, like, mysteriously disappeared when he went into the Court of Miracles. Oh, you know, I just realized something. We kind of fucked up here. The thing where Esmeralda's giving water to Quasimodo, that's like a completely separate scene from the one where Phoebus is watching her perform in the square. This is, in fact, several weeks apart, and it's it's the main reason that, like, Frollo is so interested in finding out what Pierre Gringoire is up to, because he disappeared, like, two months ago. So sorry about that, but, like, it was January, now it's towards the end of March. Yeah, so Frollo, I guess, just hasn't been super concerned about how, where his, like, single student has been this time. Um, but Frollo pretty much right away, like, learns that 
Pierre and Esmeralda are married. And this, like, this shatters Frollo's world. He starts freaking out on Pierre. Super pissed. Um, to the point where Pierre has to be like, well, we don't, like, touch each other. Like... I've never even seen her naked. I kind of peeked this one time. And, like, Frollo even freaks out at the idea of Pierre, like, seeing Esmeralda's partially naked body. And he leaves to go back to the church. Yeah, so, by this point, Quasimodo, like, he's kind of getting distracted. Rainy the Bells used to be, like, the one good part of Quasimodo's existence, but now he spends a lot of his time watching Esmeralda dance. So, in case anyone was wondering how Jeanne is doing, which I'll just say right now, Jeanne is my favorite character for literally no reason. He does nothing good in this story, and yet, like, I don't know. I really don't know what is so, like, charming about him to me. But one thing I find interesting is that most adaptations do not include Jehan as a character. Or, if they do include Jehan as a character, they, like, do some weird thing where, like, they make him older, or they make him the one who's attracted to Esmeralda, and Claude is just, like, a perfectly normal priest. We're, we're gonna see a lot of different variations on Jehan. I don't honestly know if there have been, like, the adaptations where Jehan has a completely different role in the story probably, like, way outnumber the ones where he's mostly faithful to the original book. They do my man dirty. I love Jeanne. I am the number one Jeanne Frollo fan, maybe currently existing. Just, not because I love Jeanne that much, but just because I don't think anybody else in the world, like, even remotely cares about him. I mean, he's like, he's like 16 years old. He's annoying sometimes. I think if he were alive today, he would be one of those like TikTok kids. Oh, I'm sure if I know him, if I knew him in person, I would hate him. He seems like the worst kind of person who would go to my school, but he feels so much like somebody that I would know in person that I can't help but love him. Like, everyone else in the story feels like a crazy archetype. And then there's just Jayad being like a little asshole. So the important thing, the reason why we're bringing Jehan up all of a sudden is because he needs money. And the reason for this is despite the fact that he's 16 years old, he gets drunk a lot. I mean, to be fair, I know a lot of 16-year-olds and that has not stopped any 16-year-old ever. Jehan is kind of financially irresponsible and he needs money. And the only person he knows who can give him money is his brother, Claude. So he shows up at Notre Dame and he finds out that Claude is actually expecting someone, someone mysterious. So Claude is right in the middle of explaining to Jehan exactly why he can't and or shouldn't give him any money when the mysterious man dressed all in black who Claude is expecting actually shows up, and the priority is then to hide Jehan under, I guess, under Claude's desk? It's not entirely clear why he needs to be hidden, like why Claude can't just be like, oh, this is, is my brother. He hides under the stove. Presumably his alchemy stove? I don't know, maybe he just, maybe it's just where he cooks meals. And probably also alchemy. You don't want to mix those two. Oh shit, I got my alchemy stuff caught up in my food stuff. You got your alchemy in my peanut butter. So... 
the mysterious man who enters is one of the king's assistants who has basically come to, like, check up on how Claude's alchemy stuff is going, see if there's anything the king can do to help him uh, figure out how to make gold. And in the meantime, uh, this is an excellent opportunity for Jehan to, like, spy on them and, like, get some secret important information. But Jehan's not really interested in that because he's just a shitty kid. So instead, uh, he tunes out and starts eating, like, some moldy food that he finds on the floor. See, this is why I love Jehan, because I feel like I know people who would do this. I have friends in my own life who, like, unfortunately, I have to admit, if they were in this situation, would just start eating moldy food off the ground. Victor Hugo so perfectly taps into what it's like to be 16 years old with Jayad, and I think that's why he's my favorite character, because there's really no other reason for him to be. So, in order to make sure that Jehan stays quiet and hides under the stove, Claude basically gives him all the money in his purse just to hide, and then before Claude can, like, actually take back the collateral, Jehan just kind of runs off and goes to the bar. There's also, like, a great moment where Frollo's talking to this guy, and all of a sudden, like, he notices, like, a spider web on his window, and, like, the visitor is about to, like, stop this spider from eating a fly that's, like, been caught in the web, and Frollo, like, angrily stops him and goes on this lawn rant about how the spider and the fly are a metaphor for fate. I think Frollo basically says, like, I am both the spider and the fly. Yeah, I like, she is the fly, but I am also the fly. And, like, Jan's not paying attention, but, like, the visitor has no idea what Frollo is talking about. Because, like, keep in mind at this point, like, the reader gets the idea that Frollo is totally obsessed with Esmeralda, but nobody else really knows about this. So, like, obviously the whole spider and the web thing is, like, he's trying to say that fate has cursed him and caused him to, like, have these sexual feelings and that, like, Esmeralda is also the victim of fate because he presumably is going to do these terrible things to her. But Frollo was the only person who was in on this metaphor. As, as before, Frollo is obsessed with Esmeralda. I think he just kind of happens to be walking down the street right after all this happens. When all of a sudden he notices Jehan is meeting up with a friend and telling him about how he got all this money and how he's going to spend it all on alcohol. And you might think that Frollo is concerned about this, but that's not what he's concerned about. He's concerned with the fact that this guy is none other than Captain Phoebus. Yeah, and so Frollo overhears Jehan and Phoebus's conversation I'll say right now, I really appreciate Jayad and Phoebus's bromance, especially because it really comes out of nowhere. You know, that's a good point. Like, how old is Phoebus? Because Jehan is pretty young. He's like 16 years old. And we don't really know how they know each other or anything. It really comes out of nowhere. I love it. Phoebus just happens to spend a lot of his time with 16-year-olds. So Phoebus tells Jayad about how he has, like, a date set up with Esmeralda, and obviously this is very interesting to Frollo, so he follows them, totally not creepily. 
And of course, like, this is when Victor Hugo pulls one of his, like, Jeanne and Phoebus are walking down the street, and there's this, like, man in this cloak who is watching them. Like, yeah, no shit, that's Frollo. Jehan basically, like, passes out from drinking too much wine at about 6 p.m. As you do. As you do when you're 16. Phoebus ends up walking alone to uh, the spot where he's going to have his date with Esmeralda. Frollo is following him and just kind of stops him in the street and says to him, Look, I know that you're going to go out with Esmeralda tonight. If you could just find a place where I could hide so I could watch the two of you, I will pay you money. Frollo also knows that Phoebus doesn't have enough money to pay because he spent all his money on drinking. So because Frollo has been listening in, he knows that Phoebus is basically broke right now. So it's like, I'll pay for your hotel room, but you got to let me watch. And Phoebus, you know, he's very drunk and presumably already has a boner. So at this point, he like... He's not going to say no to this. Also, Phoebus, you know, he's, he's not the sharpest tool in the drawer. So he does, he's not really thinking about what this means or why somebody would want to, like, watch him and Esmeralda in secret. So, you know, he, he doesn't really think. He's fine with this idea. And Frollo follows Phoebus to the little, like, hotel on the river. And this, is, and this place is literally, like, on the river. Like, there's a bridge, and along the side of the bridge, there are all these little houses, something that they don't really do anymore, but this was pretty common in medieval Europe. So the hotel literally just, like, is right above the river. So Frollo is he's basically just in this little, like, side room that has a peephole, so he can see what's going on, but obviously Esmeralda has no idea that Frollo is here. Esmeralda enters the room, she and Phoebus start flirting. Which is kind of awkward because Esmeralda is basically being forced into losing her virginity when she doesn't really want to. And Phoebus is about to be a married man to another woman, so. Yeah, like Esmeralda is clearly uncomfortable at the fact that she's about to lose her virginity because she thinks it means that she'll never find her parents again. But she is so blinded by her love her attraction towards Phoebus. Um, Phoebus is, you know, he's, he's not super woke about consent. He's, he's really just here for the fuck. Phoebus, you can tell that, like, he's very used to uh, flirting with women, with girls. Esmeralda, you know, this is her first time really having any sort of romantic encounter that we know of. Obviously, Phoebus takes advantage of her naivete, and all of this might have turned out all right, not great, but all right, if it weren't for the fact that Frollo is still there and watching this whole scene play out is just driving him absolutely insane. So he actually steps out of the little closet that he's in, and I don't know where he gets it, but he, he grabs a dagger and just... I think he just had one. Maybe. Uh, I thought maybe he stole it from somewhere, but it doesn't say. Frollo walks up and just stabs Phoebus and then jumps out the window into the river and swims away, leaving Esmeralda there to be discovered by the police. And they think, well, I mean, we already know that this girl is a sorceress. She's a witch. It's no wonder that she would stab such a well-respected young man. Yeah, this is just a very bad situation for Esmeralda. 
all around. Because she, clearly in this scene, like, seems to have some sort of pretension that Phoebus is totally in love with her as she is with him, and that they're gonna get married, and they're gonna stay together forever. And it's very clear that, like, Phoebus is not operating at any level other than physical. You know, like, he's gonna go get married to this fleur-de-lis, this rich, decently pretty girl, and forget all about this. Yeah, so already, like, this just sucks for Esmeralda. And then, Phoebus gets stabbed in front of her, and she is accused of the crime. So, basically, this is super long, because... It's a a lot happens in this book. There's a lot that happens. There's a lot to talk about. So, I've been Ben Schultz. I've been Nora Schultz. And you have been listening to Trying to Adapt. Thank you. Thank you.